It's time for security now. I'm back. Steve's here. We'll talk about uh, the big J.P. Morgan breach and a whole lot more security news. Plus, we've got 10 questions from you, our fine audience, that Steve will answer. It's all coming up next on Security Now. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 476, recorded October 7th, 2014. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 198. Security Now is brought to you by Carbonite. Whether you have one computer at home or several at your small business, Carbonite backs up your files to the cloud automatically and continually. Plus, access your files anytime, anywhere with a free app. Start your free trial at Carbonite.com. No credit card required. Use the offer code SECURITYNOW, one word, and get two bonus months with purchase. And by Citrix Go to Assist, the number one global market leader in remote support. Sign up for Go to Assist before October 10th to get another Citrix product free for six months. Visit gotoassist.com and get started. And by audible.com. To download a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash security now. It's time for security now, the show that protects your security now and there's never been a better time <laughs> for a show like this steve gibson is here the security guru hi steve hey you know we used to have like an opportunity to talk about fundamental technology things yeah. that was one of our fun sort of divergences and now we're just panting to keep up with security breaches and i mean that's really the main focus of the podcast, of course. But boy, it's, it really does seem like things are going crazy. And we've got more of the same this week. Just after last week's podcast, news surfaced of the largest single breach in history, which was J.P. Morgan Chase. They had to make a securities filing where they, they for the first time, told the world about a problem that began in June, which they discovered in July and didn't really get resolved until August. Wow. Um, and, of course, uh, while you were gone, we, we last week's topic was shell shock, this, you know, catastrophe that was discovered in Bash that's been around for decades. Um, then we also we're going to talk about the return of bad USB, the exploit code, or I, I should say, exploit code, not the original Black Hat Conference exploit code, but some other guys duplicated that and posted it to GitHub. So it's now public. Uh, and even it turns out uh, the Bugzilla bug tracker has itself a bug. Oh. So the question is, does it report on itself? <laughs> oh. um, we've got a little sci-fi miscellany. Uh uh, I picked up an interesting question about SpinRight that I, th I thought I would answer in the spirit of today's Q&A and our 198th Q&A with actually one, well, all good questions, of course, because I was able to choose among hundreds, um, but specifically one really interesting one about uh, th that you'll be interested in and our listeners will, will be, I think, because one of our listeners discovered that his HTTPS switchover was blinding 
his advertisers to click-throughs, and that does happen. So we'll be talking about that and uh, all the news of the week as well. Wow. Yeah. Wow. It's a busy day. We'll get to all of that in a second. But first, let's have a word real quickly from our uh, our sponsor and good friends at Carbonite Online Backup. Goodness knows backup is, is probably the best thing you could do to protect yourself against a security breach. If you've got a good backup, if you, malware doesn't bite. You just reformat and reinstall. But so many people don't have a good backup. And, and you might ask, well, what is a good backup? Well, obviously, it's a complete backup of all your data. But more importantly, it's up to date. And if you have to remember to back up, that's not likely. Carbonite is automatic, so you don't have to think about it. In fact, once you install Carbonite, you can forget about it till next year. Or even two years hence, or three years hence. Because you can, you can subscribe for two. In fact, you get big savings if you subscribe to two or three years. It's also continuous. Whenever you're online, it's backing up. That's nice. Because you make a change to a file, and it's going to be backed up right away. For business, Carbonite has some great solutions, including a Carbonite appliance that does both local and off-site backup. And off-site is so important because when there's a big disaster, uh, you know, fire, flood, you're going to wish you had a backup off-site. Carbonite does that for you automatically. This is National Preparedness Month, you know. Never, nobody wants to think about disaster, but it's a really good idea to have a plan. Then if it doesn't happen, you're happy. It doesn't matter. It's okay. Visit Carbonite.com. Take a look at their various plans for personal, pro, server, appliance. They even have, uh, you know, for $59.99 a year, they will back up. This is a base plan. It'll back up everything on your Mac or your PC. But, of course, for business, it's even more important. Try it now. Just go to Carbonite.com. They won't ask you for a credit card. You can just give it a shot. But do use, I ask you to use the offer code SECURITYNOW, one word, and your reward for that, if you sign up, you get two free months. Plus, with Carbonite, you can access your files wherever you go with their free Carbonite apps. Carbonite is so amazing. They back up, I love this, 350 million files a day. A day. 50,000 small businesses use Carbonite. They do have special discounts for nonprofits, K-12. through Their support is from the U.S. They, you know, they tried outsourcing it and they brought it back uh, onto our shores because... They really wanted to give the best possible support. And by the way, yes, they're HIPAA compliant. They have trust no one encryption as an option. Just go to Carbonite.com. Use the offer code security now. Try it free and uh, you'll get two free months with your purchase. Carbonite.com. Steve Gibson is at GRC.com. That's his website, the Gibson Research Corporation. He's also at SGGRC on the Twitter and uh, you you have really taken to that Twitter thing. <laughs> you actually you didn't like it at first. Uh, I had to talk you uh, into it. I remember this. Don't deny it. We have tapes. Um, I'm sure that's true because, you know, <laughs> early I'm days, nobody only a little bit younger than Jerry. This, this show predates um, Twitter. We should point out. It does. Yeah. And uh, and and I've really always been a fan of non-real-time communications. I love email and I love news groups. You know, I mean, GRC, main, you know, runs a very active news group server. And I love it's, it too. it's just, it's valuable to be yeah. able to, you know, schedule that stuff when you want. But, but so, so first I was only DMing because 
I just sort of didn't understand why everybody else would want to <laughs> read your stuff, read my <laughs> my responses to individual yeah. people. So and then then people was like, well, I can't DM you if you're not following me. And so that caused a lot of confusion. And I finally I, I like thought said, OK, fine. And so now I'm just, you know, responding and uh, you're using it in a it very is, sensible way, I think. Well, and it's really thanks to, again, my followers right. who are typically our listeners is, you know, it's this huge dragnet. They're all out right. there finding things and reading things and interested in in this, in topics that are that are, you know, relate to the podcast. And so they make sure that I have that I'm aware of those things. And oh, my goodness, that's valuable. So I uh, I encourage it. And I, you know, I read my feed. I see everything that anybody sends. Um, yeah, it's it's an absolute win for me. Yeah, yeah. So if you want to tweet him at sggrc, you can also read him. If you don't tweet him, so make sure you follow him. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> okay. So, yeah. um, so okay. So top of the week is, uh, and this was picked up, you know, through the news and the Sands Institute has like several uh, articles about it. Uh, J.P. Morgan Chase reported what turns out to be the largest breach we know of 76 million households and 7 million small businesses had their not really critical data stolen but you know any data stolen from the, the nation's largest bank is a problem because we want to believe that you know these guys really take security seriously and understand security and so what was discovered was essentially, uh, you know, what we're now calling an APT, an advanced persistent threat. Some attackers and, you know, it's funny as I'm reading these stories, I'm seeing that the, 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 the standard media and even the technical press uses the term hacker. And for many years, I was I was scolded by people who were offended by my use of that term. So for a while I was saying malicious hacker trying to, you know, create that 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 modification. Now I'm just much more comfortable saying attacker. I think attacker is like the right phrase to use. So so as as I'm reading these I'm having to remind myself, okay, these are attackers that we're talking about because I no longer really think of a hacker as being necessarily, you know, bad. So um, under the condition of anonymity, people who are knowledgeable of the investigation. So this is even now there's this is still under wraps and it's all third hand, although multiply sourced. And so the people reporting, for example, in The New York Times are are sure of their facts. Um, so you mean J.P. Morgan Chase has never gone public with this? This Correct. is this is all regulatory filings that it, they had to make. Yes, and it turns out that there's sort of a it's sort of a odd characteristic of our current laws, which is even this sort of an institution need not disclose if there's no so if there's no clear financial impact yeah. to their customers. And they're stating that they have no they have no evidence that a penny was was fraudulently transferred from any customer accounts. So they believe that 
um, names, addresses, email addresses, and phone numbers were uh, exfiltrated. But not, but not credit card numbers. Correct. Not social security numbers, not credit card numbers. Um, and so not the most sensitive information. Oh, and not passwords. And, and they have seen no evidence of fraud resulting from this breach. Um, they do believe that the attackers are based in Russia and for and for reasons that aren't clear, because, again, we're sort of dealing with, well, don't don't quote me on this. But, you know, I'm familiar with the investigation that these other people say, not not me personally. And and like they're involved with high, high echelons of the Russian government. So. Some people are speculating that this is as a consequence of, you know, the escalating sanctions that the U.S. government is imposing on on Russia, you know, due to the whole Ukraine issue. Uh, But again, this is all speculation, although apparently because enough forensics has been found they're They're absolutely sure that this this data, these attacks came from Russian IP addresses. You know, that much seems clear. Um, so, um, apparently the, uh, security team discovered this breach, as I mentioned at the top of the show, initially in July and was able to post date the, the initial intrusion to June. Um, the attackers over this period of time attained the highest level of administrative privilege available in dozen of the bank's servers. Not good. No. They reached more than 90 different machines, um, but sort of paradoxically, no evidence of any uh, fraud that resulted. So it's it's really sent a chill through the 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 ranks of of cyber uh, focused people in in our government that this sort of thing happened and Was then it the shell next- shock do they know the, how it happened no uh, and this it does predate any public knowledge of shell shock but again we don't know how long and whom might have been aware of the vol- of the share sh- the shell shock vulnerability what was really interesting was that they determined that a complete list of the programs and web applications being used on the servers was obtained and that apparently from logs it looks like that th- this was very methodical the russians got a list of all the software then went through methodically looking for unpatched vulnerabilities in all of that software which i mean so you know so while we, we all agree that uh you know obscurity is not security um it's handy to have some obscurity when you can and so the idea that the bad guys got a, a, an inventory of all the software that was on these machines and then methodically swept it for any vulnerabilities that were known i mean that's you know that that's a high end attack that's that's how you know that that's what you do when you're not in a hurry and you're determined that to get penetration. So, yikes. And the next day, we heard that nine other unnamed major financial institutions 
have also had breaches, maybe part of the wow. same group. It's, it's wow. believed part of the same group. It's interesting that they didn't attempt to make financial transactions. Maybe they didn't have the capability, or maybe they were just interested in kind of that basic information, which is useful and, and, and worth something on the, on the black market anyway. Right? Oh, yeah. I mean, so, yeah, 76 million customers of J.P. Morgan Chase names, addresses, email addresses, and phone numbers. Yeah. So, yeah, you're right. But, you'd rather not have but that. But not social right. security numbers. Uh, probably not yeah. enough information for identity theft. And, and no passwords. Cards, no passwords. Right. Right. Still concerning. Yeah. And, you know, to find out that they have been in touch, they've, they've been into, that they've penetrated uh, 90 servers and obtained full root level access. So the presumption is they could have done whatever they wanted to but maybe hmm. the servers they had they had access to didn't, didn't have, have the information yeah. that would have been, yeah. that would have been yeah. you, know, you can imagine that there's probably a lot of servers at JP Morgan Chase and do remember that uh, we've known for years that this stuff happens a lot and banks because they have no obligation to report it and don't want to scare their customers usually don't right it just happened that in this case they had to so in breathless news we have the headlines Yahoo servers were owned by Bash bug hackers. And so it's like, oh, okay, that does not sound good. So it turns out that uh, it turns out even that headline was incorrect. The uh, Yahoo's CISO, Alex Stamos, clarified what had what happened over this past weekend. He explained that although the attackers were looking to exploit Bash, I mean, you know, bash, you know, the, the whole the, the shell shock bug is, you know, still sweeping the Internet with with hackers trying to get into servers using it. He, he explained that they happened to take advantage of a different bug, maybe without knowing it. Um, uh, he was quoted saying, it turns out that the servers were and this is like a small number of servers um uh, that are their sports API servers. He said, turns out that the servers were in fact not affected by Shellshock. Three of our sports API servers, he, he said, had malicious code executed on them this weekend by attackers looking for vulnerable Shellshock servers. Um, so if we read that carefully, it says, it, that sounds like they were recruited into a botnet and that is in fact the attack pattern is that we're seeing that that i mean there are worms already and so it sounds like something got into these servers and it may not have been a shell shock vulnerability but but the, but the yahoo servers were recruited to look for other vulnerable shell shock servers which is not surprising he 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 continued saying these attackers had mutated their exploit. This mutation happened to exactly fit a command injection bug in a monitoring script our sports team was using at that moment to parse and debug their web logs. The affected API servers are used to provide live game streaming data to our sports front end and do not store user data. At this time... We found no evidence that the attackers compromised any other machines or that any user data was affected. This flaw was specific 
to a small number of machines and has been fixed. So, you know, this, this, this splashed headlines, I guess, because, you know, Yahoo is so well known and the press is just frantic for shell shock bash bug stories. And so, <laughs> right. you know, it's like, okay, fine. Yeah, nothing there. Um, now, this is interesting um, because we've got a lot more information now. Um, we talked, it was a couple of months ago uh, in July when uh, Karsten Knoll demonstrated the bad USB exploit, essentially. I mean, basically, he put into certainly this podcast's uh, communal knowledge the fact that some number of USB devices have rewritable firmware. And that's a bad thing because, you know, you just you look at the USB device. It looks like a thumb drive. We assume that all it is is passive storage. But in fact, it's got a microcontroller in it. And now we know a lot more. What happened is that two other security researchers last week at the DerbyCon uh, hacker conference revealed their research. Um, and we've talked about Adam uh, uh, Caudill before. So Adam Caudill and Brandon Wilson demonstrated that they had followed uh, in Karsten's footsteps. And unlike Karsten, who has never published anything, he demonstrated his stuff just to sort of hopefully stir the industry to clean up its act. Well, these guys, Adam and Brandon, decided, you know, uh, it's been a few months. Nothing apparently has happened. We're going to turn the heat up a little bit. So they put their entire exploit kit up on GitHub, all documented, all open source. Oh, that's nice. So what's, in so what's interesting is that for anyone who's interested in playing with this, I'm not obviously promoting this for nefarious actors, but we it is it is interesting to know more. So for example, we know that the that the USB drives which can be attacked are based on a I guess you pronounce it Fison, P-H-I-S-O-N. Fison is one of the largest Taiwanese-based suppliers of USB thumb drives and i'm sure they're you know relabeled and in fact i know they are because for example the patriot 8 gig supersonic express is one of one that is vulnerable or exploitable the uh, patriot stellar 64 gig uh fison kingston's data traveler 3.0 uh t 111 8 gig drive silicon Power Marvel M60 64 gig drive and Toshiba's Trans Memory MX Black 16 gig drive, and you know, probably many, many more. So, um, their kit, uh, you ha uh, is you know, they just built this not necessarily to be widely used, but in order to sort of create some foundation. So, for example, they they built it around uh, .NET 4.0. So you have to have that installed in a Windows machine. Uh, they use Visual Studio 2012 Express, which is a free download from Microsoft. The Express versions of, of Visual Studio are. Um, there's something called the Small Device C compiler, which is a it's a it's a an open source C compiler 
used for, as it sounds, small devices, meaning various microcontrollers. Among them is the 8051, which, of course, is a for it's been an Intel standard, which I think Intel is no longer supporting, but it just sort of it it acquired uh, <laughs> not not self awareness, but critical mass in the industry. <laughs> so, like many people, although self awareness would be fun, yeah, that would be good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll have that. We'll have that in in the next conference. Um, and so, uh, anyway, it's a it's a a Harvard architecture for banks of i think it's eight registers per bank it's a little eight bit microcontroller but that's what this company uh fison uses and that's what these guys wrote and and altered the firmware for so they, they they consider themselves white hats i mean they're for example so so they wanted to clarify what they did and so in adam's companion blog he said okay what did we release we released a patch to demonstrate the feasibility of creating a hidden partition on a usb thumb drive so that's there the the you know so if somebody were interested in doing that for example for their own purposes they could get any of these drives and or check whether any drives they have may be already workable. There is a utility, an XE, that they provide, which allows you to stick in a thumb drive and it'll poke at it to see whether it's compatible with their firmware. And then you could, you know, play games. They also implemented um, what they called a password bypass. Some of these drives, the firmware itself supports password protection. What they did was they they created a firmware modification such that it it won't defeat the password if it's already there. But if you were to modify the firmware first, then it essentially neuters the subsequent application of a password that would otherwise have been supported by the firmware. So again, they're 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 trying to demonstrate. They, they were sort of like trying to walk a fine line. They, they were demonstrating alterations to thumb drive firmware that does interesting things, but, you know, deliberately trying not to hurt anybody. For example, they explicitly said what we did not release. And Adam wrote, we did not release self-replication. There's no self-replication code anywhere, he writes, while it's possible that it could be done, and we've talked about how to do it, it won't be released here. He said, I am confident that we, Brandon and I, could build a system that would infect PCs, then infect a significant percentage of thumb drives, and then infect other PCs. But, he says, but, and this is a big but, what we released doesn't make that easier in any significant way. Your average script kitty will never be able to do it. There are only a small number of people. I think he underestimates that, but, we'll, but, but he wrote, there's only a small number of people that would be able to do the work needed to pull that off. Those people could already do it before we released what we did. 
He said the threat of this happening is the same as it's always been. So, you know, they're obviously sensitive to claims that they're escalating. And I would I would argue a little bit. I would say, you know, the more of this kind of work that's out there, the, the, it, it facilitates more than if it weren't there. It feels and like they're just they're, showing off. There's no real value. Is there to publishing this? So... So Do we learn anything position, from it? Um, yeah, I, I, I think maybe it keeps it in the air. And what and, and he, he he ends by saying that that what we're hoping for is that manufacturers will add uh, code signing there to prevent future modifications. So it's and kind of like fire sheep. It's like. Well, let's set the whole thing on fire, and then they'll have to do something. Yeah, I mean, and and, and he also rec- he acknowledges. Um, I don't remember now if it's on on GitHub or in his blog posting, but but somewhere he says it's it's clear that all of these devices are already out in the world. So if the change were made tomorrow, and who knows if it's even ever going to be made, then if it were made, it would still take a decade for like all of the existing drives to fill up and die or go away or become obsolete. So essentially we, you know, we have a problem and uh, uh, anyway, so uh, again, I'm responding to sort of overwrought press stories saying, you know, Oh my God, you know, bad, bad USB is back and now it's public. It's like, yeah, okay. Um, and essentially what Adam is, has written is saying we were curious, so we poked at it, and we were able to do it too. And I guess his point is it is reproducible. It's not difficult. And by us doing this, we really haven't changed anything because, I mean, and he is right. You, you, you need to be a, you know, be able to write 80, uh, 8051 assembly language or, I get, or C, I guess, uh, you know, but but disassemble the firmware, reverse engineer it, figure it out, make modifications, and then move forward. So it, it's a project, but certainly not beyond, you know, state-level actors. That would be trivial for them. Mm. Now, again, uh, bringing a little bit of sanity to the Bugzilla report. What the press uh, said was that a Bugzilla zero day exposes zero day bugs um <laughs> so here's the story what was found was that a non-default configuration of bugzilla could allow privileges based on email domain the default installation doesn't do that but it's certainly possible for some Bugzilla administrators to say, hey, you know, we want, we, we're, we're just going to make this easy for ourselves. Everybody with a Mozilla, say, take the case of Mozilla, Mozilla.org domain email address just automatically has privileges to, to see bug reports for submitted zero-day known-to-us vulnerabilities that are obviously not available to the public. So the point is that, you know, Bugzilla is, is 
going to have administrative privileges that allow some people to see submissions that are non-public. It turns out that it that so but Bugzilla can be configured to give those privileges by email domain. And the problem is when you create a Bugzilla account, it does no email verification. So anyone could create oh, in tough. this example, yeah, a mozilla.org email address mm. and instantly have oh, it's a bug. <laughs> admin privileges. Okay, that is a bug. That's yeah. not a That's good a thing. Stupid. That's easy fixed. Easy fixed though. Always been there, apparently, as like from the beginning. It's just it never did email loop verification. And maybe the people who understood that weren't worried because it isn't the default condition to to give to give blanket permission by email domain, but it is an option. And some people apparently have used that. And when when if those companies were using Bugzilla in that way, the fact that there's no account, you know, email account verification means obviously that if sensitive bugs were being submitted, people you didn't intend to have see them could ha access them. So that's what that story is about. Um, I wanted to note, I tweeted, I think it was yesterday, Amazon sent me the, the, a note that they had shipped my copy of Edge of Tomorrow, which was fabulous. Um, I just Tom Cruise has been doing a a bunch of great sci-fi movies. I loved Oblivion from Summer hey, Before Last. Shipped it? You didn't just watch it on demand or stream it? They, they you got oh, a physical oh. disc? I like. I remember. Okay, Leo, I'm just barely using Twitter. So <laughs> were you I'm, waiting by the mailbox I, with bated <laughs> breath? My disc is here. My disc is here. I I've seen the movie. I love the movie, and so <laughs> oh, I'm you looking wanted to own it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay. I do. I like to own the bits of <laughs> like the physical. Like I said, I'm still a little bit old school. So <laughs> you don't plan moving I, anytime soon. So no, no, exactly. So I'm looking forward to seeing it again. I just wanted to give our listeners a heads up. Many people responded to my tweets in agreement. Uh, IMDB gave it an eight out of 10. Rotten Tomatoes gave it a 90 percent. Uh, with an audience score of ninety-one percent, it's just a great. It's a uh, it it unless you really have a problem with Tom Cruise. The only reason I could imagine that you wouldn't just love it. So I wanted to let our our, our sci-fi listeners about him, but it sounds like he's pretty good in this. So. He really is. Actually, yeah. he did a he as an actor, he did a great job. He 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 at the beginning of the movie, he's like this PR flack, and he realizes, okay, I guess I could better you know start shooting things anyway it was, it was it's sort of time travel and and wonderful stuff um and uh oh and are you a homeland watcher leo love homeland i didn't now don't no spoilers because i haven't watched the season premiere yet oh my lord it's season four began on sunday and oh it looks like it's going to be I, I i i've been been exchanging texts with jenny because she's a, equally equally into homeland and I think the see I think the series has really hit its stride. It's it, it it's a you know you have to allocate an hour and forty five minutes because it's a two episode premiere for season four. But wow, um, that just really looks good. Good. And in keeping with the Q and A spirit of the podcast, yeah. I wanted I ran across a question from Martin in Frankfurt, Germany. 
uh, wondering how much he might be, how much use he might be able to get out of a troubled drive after using Spinrite. And I thought I would, I would use his question to, to, and, and answer that for everyone. He said, hello, Steve. I have a question about how safe it is to still use a drive after it was spin-righted. And he said, yay, official new word since last Security Now podcast. I guess we someone said spin-righted uh, or spin-written. Anyway, you can make up your own word. Um, and spin-right has found sectors that are not recoverable. And that's what makes this question interesting. He said, in such an instance, does spin-right tell the drive to map out those bad sectors so that they will never be used again. Is it therefore safe to still use the drive and the remaining good portion, or should one consider not using the drive at all anymore since it shows rather severe damage? I guess it all depends on the overall age and usage of the drive and how important the data you want to put on the drive is to you. But just from a purely technical point of view, would Spinrite move those bad apples out of the way for you? As always, thanks for your great wisdom and advice. Okay, so here's the, that's interesting because what happens is a drive will never relocate a sector that it is unable to at least finally read successfully. So... When Spinrite is doing recovery, it is, it is trying all sorts of tricks, as I've talked about in the past, to, to get just one last successful read of the sector. Because oftentimes what's happened is the, the, the error is just a little too long for the error correction to, 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 to be applicable. Um, so if we can just shorten that by a bit or two, then the ECC can correct the sector. The drive, apparently, <laughs> internally, breathes a huge sigh of relief and is then willing to relocate the sector. That is, it says, wow, uh, you know, here's your data. I'm putting a, a good <laughs> sector back in here. But it will never do that unless it's able to read it correctly. So what Spinrite will finally do if it exhausts itself and is completely convinced that, that no force on earth will ever be able to read this entire sector again, is Spinrite will settle for the uncorrectable data on the theory that oftentimes that's still way better than getting none. You might lose... For example, 12 bits, whereas where the drive could have corrected 11, uh, you know, so like two bytes or maybe three, depending upon how they straddled the byte boundaries. But you get the other 512. And for example, if that's a directory sector, suddenly you go from nothing downstream mm -hmm. of that point in the file system being accessible to probably everything else being accessible. So massive win in some instances. But... Then Spinrite will rewrite the sector, and that, and then reading it subsequently allows the drive to then relocate it and, and take it out of service. So again, there's like a lot more going on than most people appreciate, which is part of the reason that Spinrite 
achieves the magic that it often does. Um, it's you know it's it's there's a lot going on behind the scenes. So that's the story. I would say if you've got big red uncorrectable U's, which is what shows up on the spin right map, um, that's a drive which is really doing everything it can to tell you, yeah, you know, don't use me anymore. Mm-hmm. What you would have to do really is if you if you were if you had to use it safely would be to to use a file backup after running Spinrite on it to get off all the data that you you can use a file backup to to move the file if you again this is if you have to use the drive for some reason you know like like you're on a desert island and <laughs> that's it there's only fries, one drive there's, there's no fries <laughs> or no amazon delivery that, oh. that's it you have to use this drive you're they remote descendant of robinson caruso so move all the files somewhere else i don't know where you would put them if there's no other drive but put them somewhere then you would have to do a a full file system format so that the file system that is the OS could itself discover those bad sectors and mark those out of the file system so nothing ever tried to use them again then put everything back but again one you you one one thing to ask yourself is why are those sectors absolutely unreadable did the drive get dropped? Did it get bumped while while they were being written? Because that's a possibility where the drive's okay, but but you know the head was made to wobble when it was writing them, and so that's one of the things that of course the spin write does is it rewrites the sector and then checks to see whether it was just a miswrite or if there's actually a defect there. In which case the drive can see it and and swap it out to safety. So again. A little more going on behind the scenes than is uh, always obvious. Very interesting. We have uh, questions. You have answers. And yep. we're going to get to those in just a second. But first, a word from our friends at Citrix. If you're in the IT business, you got to know about GoToAssist, the number one global market leader in remote support. I almost hate saying remote support because it's so much more. If you're in IT or, or, or software support, you know that IT support can really be a challenge especially when you have remote or mobile employees. Citrix GoToAssist cuts through the challenge with a series of cloud-based tools that make it so easy for you to support your users. You and your IT team can solve problems faster. And right now is a good time. If you've, think, if you've been thinking, oh, I ought to try GoToAssist, now is an excellent time because when you sign up for the free 30-day trial of GoToAssist, you're going to get... Another Citrix product, the product of your choice, free for six months. I, I'm not sure how this works. It's a lost leader. Go to Assist Remote Support. It lets you provide live and unattended remote support to any computer or mobile device from any computer or mobile device. You can screen share to diagnose and fix support problems faster and more effectively. And the Go to Assist apps will help you become a support hero. If you work in IT, man... You probably have heard about GoToAssist. I want you to try it. 30 days free. And if you've been thinking, oh, I ought to do this, now's the time because the offer ends October 10th. You get six months free of any other Citrix product, the product of your choice. But don't wait. This special offer ends just a few days hence. Visit GoToAssist.com and sign up to uh, receive this special offer today. And if you're listening to this show late, I'm sorry. 
so sorry. But you can still try Go to Assist free for 30 days. Go to assist.com. Try it today. Steve Gibson is remote support for many of us. He's moral support for many of us. And it's time for Steve to answer some questions. You've got questions. Steve's got answers. What? Uh, Leo, how much time did you spend in London? Why? About a week. Because I'm. you're saying hence. Hence. Oh, I say stupid. <laughs> stupid things like that all the time. I'm just teasing you. I, 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 I heard it back weekly. I thought, well, that's interesting. Okay, we're, getting a lot of of we're getting a lot of a lot of hences lately. I went to Yale, remember? you? We, they, they teach us all those. In fact, it's so yeah. funny when you go see the real, you know, English Gothic cathedrals and the real English Hampton Court palaces and realize that most of Yale was built in the 20s to look yeah. just like that. Uh, yep. you feel you feel like I've seen this before, uh, but it's but it's a copy. It's a it's a. Thin- yes, we have we have Disneyland. They have the real. Thing. Yeah, they have the real castle. We it have was a facade. Fun. We had a great time. It was really that's a lot neat. Of fun. A yeah, you short. said you saw the changing of the guard and yeah, yeah. That's the silliest neat. thing because they're wearing these big bearskin hats, and in some cases, not all. I'm looking at these soldiers. And their eyes are obsc- are like underneath the hat. They're just a nose and a mouth wa- walking down. But they're carrying M16s with bayonets. And, uh, and how many people are there watching the change? Oh my God, lots. So that's like the thing to do. You were you were not alone. You you and <sighs> no, we didn't and, make it up. I mean, it's a uh, very touristy thing to do. But yeah, uh, yeah. Here I'll show yeah. you a picture of. Uh, I think I have some. Pictures of the changing of the guard. God, Since you, you ask, you had beautiful pictures, Leo. I had so much fun. You got camera technology. Well, Lisa yeah. and I both love our cameras, and 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 yeah. traveling. And I think this is if you like to travel, this is one of the things that makes traveling uh, fun. Is you know, it's kind of almost an excuse. That, oh, we're going to take, we're going to take pictures, right? And, uh, and it's just an ex- it's something to do while you walk around and you see the city. And boy, we saw so many. I think I have a video. Well, it does. It does capture the memories. I mean, you'll look. You'll look at those in ten years and go, "Oh yeah, remember that." <laughs> in ten years, I'll look at them and go, "What is? Was I there? <laughs> who? Who are they? Why are they wearing bearskin hats? Look, this guy here. Whoops. Oh, I, yeah, I saw on. him briefly. Yeah, let me go back. Oh, I'm going forwards. I think yes. Okay, look at this guy. Right here on the on the front, <laughs> I can't even see his face, and he's oh, carrying well. an automatic weapon with a bayonet on it. He he looks warm. Where is his head? It's just a big sort of, fuzzy bear, sort of bullet shape. Most of them you don't see their eyes, but you can't even see this guy's chin. Uh, that's hysterical. <laughs> they are, and I was told, uh, crack combat troops they are not ceremonial no. guards no oh yeah no 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 this really? is very prestigious assignment they are actually combat troops well, they couldn't see the bad guys coming well i think they probably i would guess they're trained to whip the hats off <laughs> i don't know how Before this guy's not aim. running into something oh wow. there's no face maybe it's hearing. possible that maybe um, these are like Disney costumes, and there's a mesh of some what, and they're kind. playing music at the same time? Well, there's, oh, there's a band. A band. There. There's a marching band as well. And by the uh, way... Oh, yeah, you always want that with the changing of the They're cards. really good. They've got an oboe in the, <laughs> in the marching band. There's an oboe. It's... Um, actually, I think I have... Wait a minute. I think I have some audio. I'll play you... Oh, no, it's on the wrong camera. Lisa took some audio. 
but I don't have the audio of it. But it was there. There was a good, good sounding band. Very cool. So go hear the the concert at the change. So is that are, is it out of your system? Or are you going to go back? Oh, I love London. London. I've been there before. Yeah. I I love London. But I, I you know what? There's so many places to see in the world. I hate to repeat too soon. That's that's true. Yeah. All right. Questions. We've got questions. You've got answers. Our listener-driven potpourri number 198 starts with Simon in Melbourne, Australia. We're going to stay in the Commonwealth for the moment. He reminds us that HTTPS everywhere has a kind of a negative side effect. Just a quick note for the show. A while ago, you suggested Twit use SSL. While I agree with you that HTTPS everywhere is a good idea, it does leave caching proxy servers, such as those used in universities and some ISPs, useless, resulting in more bandwidth for twit.tv and others. That's actually, well, okay, I'll keep going and then I can talk about yep. this. Yep. In a non-SSL download, one student in the classroom would download a podcast, then 29 other students would download again, but these subsequent downloads would be sourced from the caching proxy, either at the ISP or university gateway level. Whereas if SSL were implemented at twit.tv, all 30 students would be hitting the server individually and no caching would be available. Oh, he's right about that. I'm sure you're aware of this. Just wanted to bring it up. Great show, by the way. That's right, isn't it? Yeah, well, except that, you know, you're using a CDN. And these days I'm surprised by, you know, when I look at links from like even small sites have independent content delivery networks that are like you know sourcing even relatively small documents and things so and typically cdns will also be supporting https or you know have that uh, available as an option but he does make a point that i think is a good one um for example i remember well when i was implementing shields up that i needed i explicitly was establishing a HTTPS connection to avoid ISP caching proxies in order to get the a connection to the user in order to, to obtain their true IP address. Because, for example, Cox Cable here in Southern California, they run a caching proxy. ISPs do that because, well, for two reasons. Um, if, if there is content out on the internet which is being um, pulled by their customers multiple times. Like, say, all the, I mean, all of the little images and twitches and buttons and stuff on, on Amazon's site. That stuff is, you know, appears on multiple pages all over their site. So the idea is that, that the first of, of the ISP's customers who visits that page, their queries go through that that caching proxy it sort of it, it essentially holds their request it issues the request on their behalf obtains that resource and caches it and then returns the results the the the, the beauty of that is then all of the other customers of that ISP when they make the request the the proxy is able to intercept it and reply locally. It's it's the locality of the cache that ends up meaning that it's a huge speed increase for the ISP's customers 
because they're having, you know, it's like basically it's like a huge portion of the Amazon remote network has moved right over onto their LAN, right onto their ISP network by by caching those resources. Um, and then the other reason the ISP uses it is that on some level, the ISP is paying somebody for its own bandwidth. That is the ISP's use of internet bandwidth. And so if they cache within their network, then, for example, in, in Simon's example, one, one blob of podcast gets transferred into their cache and then 29 other transfers are, are, are avoided by servicing it from the cache. So not only does it lower the load on the ISP, it lowers the, it lowers the, the ISP's network um, uh, transit also, you know, which on some level they've got contracts for and they're, they're being billed for and everything as we've been, as we've been talking about. Now, HTTPS, as Simon says, short circuits all of that. Because this, the whole concept presupposes a non-authenticated connection. That is, the user's browser thinks it's actually connecting, in our example, to Amazon. It's not. That's why it's called a transparent proxy. There's no actual proxy protocol negotiation. It's transparent. It's the, the connection appears to be made to Amazon, it's actually being intercepted by that caching proxy, which is then making a separate connection to Amazon. And as we know, that can only happen. You can only get a transparent interception. I mean, really, it's a man in the middle. It's not a man in the middle attack. It's a man in the middle proxy cache, but it's still in the middle. And that's what HTTPS prevents because it's going to verify the certificate of Amazon when it terminates that connection, and the the ISP's proxy is unable to do that. So, anyway, it, it's it's worth. We're going to talk. Uh, in a, a, there's a, a couple more questions that have been raised about this as a consequence of you know the the topics we've been covering in on the podcast recently. Some interesting consequences of of like switching the world over to all HTTPS. One of them is that, you know, these, you know, the benefit that was available to ISPs and their customers does get lost. All of the assets then have right. to come from that that source. I can live with that though. I mean, that's, you know, doesn't hurt me. I, yeah, you know, I I'm, yep, your pages I are small. Seen, yep. Yeah. Jamie Eastland, Marlboro, Massachusetts notes that users Maybe not always able to count on pleading the fifth. This must be something from last week. Uh, well, yeah, in your discussion with Father Robert last week, you noted that people cannot be compelled to divulge passwords unlike physical keys. I only wish that was true. The Massachusetts Supreme Court recently ruled that defendants can be compelled to provide passwords under certain conditions, such as when doing so would provide the prosecution with little or no information. <laughs> okay. In this case, the defendant had already admitted ownership of the computers. He had knowledge of the password. Knowledge of the password can be used to assert ownership of the computer, but in this case, the ownership was already admitted. So the court assigned no value to the information encrypted on the hard drive and rationalized the defendant could be compelled to produce the key. Seems like a shaky logical construct, he writes, but 
That's the rule in the Commonwealth at this time. That might be overturned at a federal level, I have to say. Keep up the wonderful work. I've been a listener and a spin right owner since year two of the podcast. My commute is an hour each way, so while I wish you produced more than 90 minutes each week, don't egg him on, please. I'm just as happy that there isn't enough news to warrant more frequent podcasts. That's so, an interesting thought, uh, uh, story, actually. It is weird. And I dug in a little bit to say, like, say, what is going on? And I'm more puzzled having done that than I was just sharing what we have with our listeners. So, you know, uh, I take it I, I what looked, you were referring to was the well-known, this came up when Touch ID first came out, the well-known uh, legal fact that, in fact, a physical thing like forcing you to use your fingerprint to unlock your phone is legal. Yes. But, uh, but if you have a warrant, but you can't force somebody to divulge, divulge the contents of their brain. Right. The idea is it, it, it is uh, under the Fifth Amendment. It's considered self-incriminating to require someone to to ba to basically testify it's it's considered testimonial uh information against your own interests which we're protected from with the 5th amendment right. and and we've talked on this podcast about this several times uh this is sort of its common belief that that is the case and it was definitely the case that a court in Massachusetts said ah, we don't think so I mean, that the Supreme Court in Massachusetts said that, which is a little worrying. And as you say, Leo, I wonder if this were taken, you know, to the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, what would happen, like if, if that would stand. But the I, I read more about it, and it really did seem like the logic was bizarre. It was, we already believe that we know everything that we're going to find out from you decrypting the contents of your hard drive, so therefore we're, we can compel you to do so. Well, it's like, uh, wait a minute. If, you, if you're convinced you already know it, and I don't want you, I don't want to share it, then, you know, how, how does that make any sense? Anyway, so... Presumably if they uncover something they didn't know, they can't use, it's inadmissible. I don't know. Yeah, it was strange. It's really but, weird. But it was uh, just, just worth mentioning because... Uh, we were assuming that we had protection, and right. maybe not. Uh, Chris in Sacramento, California, <laughs> is trying to help law enforcement. While I was patching several servers at my company for the Shellshock bug, I decided to set up a few loggers to see what sort of commands people were trying to send to our servers. I found several people were trying to use curl or wget to download malicious code. In some cases... And what he's saying we should explain is they would log into the server, then run curl or wget to put malicious code on the server. In some cases, I downloaded the code to see what it did, and I found scripts designed to connect a computer to a botnet and perform TCP and UDP flooding when given the appropriate command through IRC. My question is, is there somewhere I can send these programs to help stop these people? The programs contain IP addresses of the IRC servers for the botnet, so the right person could potentially just go shut down these servers. I looked online and found a, an FBI cybercrime page, but when I called the field office, they said, eh, we don't care. <laughs> yeah, you can have it. We don't care. And I love this question because, I, first of all, I loved Chris's team spirit. Good for him. But, yeah. Yeah, but the fact is... Uh, and I'm very sympathetic to this. 
law enforcement is so overwhelmed, especially at this moment with with shell shock. I mean, the fact is all server logs are all full of this. And so it's like saying, you know, in the middle of a, of a monsoon, hey, look, I have a glass of water. It's like, ah, look, you know, just put your hand out. Um, yeah, so the, the, the problem is um, uh, the only way the FBI would get involved would be not preemptively like this, but it would be if a company was able to demonstrate damages and i i once knew there was a dollar amount like i think like ten thousand dollars um of damages you had so there, there there's an amount of money you have to be able to demonstrate you have been cost by the malicious actions of somebody else and then they create a case and then someone's assigned to it. I mean, so it's a really long and involved process. So unfortunately, while it would be nice if they were in the business of, you know, accepting logs from people, there's at this point, you know, they're seeing male potentially malicious activity, but not evidence of a crime. And so, you know, at, unfortunately, the bar has been raised to the point now where Oh, and the the other thing I remember is that they're already typically busy solving crimes of, you know, millions and tens of millions of dollars. And so you're also ranked on the economic, you know, loss scale. And if even if you barely clear the threshold, you're still, you know, way down in the pecking order. So unfortunately, the reality of of where we are today is, you know, far less ideal than we would like it to be. But, you know, given the resource constraints, it's, it's the way things have worked out. Hey, call them up and say somebody stole my iPhone. See what they do. Nothing. Uh, yeah. Gary, <laughs> you can file a report, sir, and we'll be glad to file the file. Gary N. in Kalamazoo, Michigan, brings up an important point. All right, I realize I'm being a little picky here, but just to set the record straight, you said that Ethernet should probably not be used to connect a 400-foot run, but technically you are still using Ethernet. It's just running over a fiber optic cable. It always drives me crazy when people call twisted pair wiring Ethernet cables. Ethernet's a protocol. It can run over coax cables, twisted pair copper, fiber optic cabling. It could run over pig spit if we could figure out how to do it electrically. It's all Ethernet. Yes. I, I added the pig spit. Yes. That's an editorial on my part. Uh, but it was, it was, it was good. It's a good point. Uh, it's I'm, a protocol. I'm it's not, so it's not annoyed, the physical layer. So annoyed with myself for, like, being being lazy that way um because details are important and gary is absolutely right um as you say leo it is it, ethernet is a protocol it is it is you know started back in the what uh 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 it wasn't ten, is it 10 base 10 base two, t i think we or call base it two, 10 base t. t was twisted pair that's yeah. right yeah so it was 10 base 2 and then there, or no, no, it was, it was, wait, 10 base 2, then 100 base 2. I think we used then, also thin, we used coax. I think we used thin fiber. Or oh, thin yeah, cable, that, that was all coax. coax. Anyway, yeah. the point is that, that it is inherently a 
a sh- and, and and this is what Bet- Bob Metcalf invented right. at Xerox Park where you would use it was a shared medium technology everybody would clamp on to the same coax and it, it was called uh uh what cs cs something cd i i i haven't used the acronym for so long like oh carrier sense multiple access collision detection that's what it was the idea being that that everybody would listen, and if somebody wanted to speak to somebody else, they would wait for a pause in, like, when, when, when the shared cable wasn't carrying communication. And then just launch in. Just send a packet out onto this, this cable using the Ethernet protocol. And the idea was that... that if there was there were, there was a possibility that two people listening might both start talking at the same time, as often happens on the podcasts, um, <laughs> we need a collision-based podcast. <laughs> and so you'd have collision detection, which happens with exactly with the podcast. Both both people talking go ooh, and then they both stop, and then they wait a random amount of time. Yeah, they and time start out talking. for a random interval. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> and then start talking again. And so what and that's exactly how the Ethernet protocol manages to operate on a shared medium. And as you said, Leo, we started off with literally tapping a coax. Then, for example, we have the twisted pair connection where we have instead of everybody tapping on the same cable, because the twisted pair, you can't just tap into a twisted pair. So that's a point-to-point um, topology electrically, but the hub, when you have a hub and not a switch, the hub retransmits out to everybody what anybody sends in comes back out. So it's essentially a, it's a, it's a point-to-point electrical connection, but it's a shared information connection so again, Ethernet works in the same way. When you have a switch, there's an intelligence there which is able to learn which MAC address is connected to which port of the switch. And you can have multiple MAC addresses that the, that the switch learns are on different ports. So there, that's a store and forward technology where a packet comes into the switch and the switch has the ability itself to um to to monitor the protocol on the wire and learn by by memorizing the ARP transactions happening who's down which wire and so it's able to forward the packet only onto the the connection that's necessary now that has the advantage in a large network of allowing substantially more traffic to transit if it's dispersed traffic because the switch sort of functions like a traffic cop, sending the, the, the data only down the wires where it needs to go rather than essentially flooding the entire network with every single um, uh, sender's data across the whole network. So, again, uh, thank you, Gary. You're absolutely right. I stand, uh, you know, chastised. I, I'm annoyed that I – because that's the kind of distinction I really, you know, think this podcast should be making. But Steve, how does token ring work? 
Completely no, no, different. no. <laughs> no, no, stop. <laughs> uh, moving on. <laughs> Alex in Orange County. Actually, this is a good, this is a long one. Get ready. Brace yourself. Because he, he has noticed a potentially negative side effect of switching to SSL. Another one. And, and Leo, you're going to care about this one. I do already, yep. deeply. Hi, Steve and Leo. Been listening for a little over a year now, filling my commute time with the show. Thank you for that. I know you have brought up how there is more and more of a push for sites to switch over to TLS and SSL. Really, the push is coming from Google. I actually switched my site, a hobby site, with about 5,000 visitors a day. That's nice. That's a big hobby That's site. That's a big hobby. Yeah. To use TLS with, might as well, perfect forward secrecy, right on. In the first quarter of this year, to help keep my visitors' forum passwords secure, they may use the same passwords elsewhere, after all. In the last couple of months, I had a couple of my direct advertisers contact me about how clicks to their site from mine have dropped drastically recently. One of them was about to not renew their banner ad. What I realized after the first one was they weren't getting the referrer data. That meant my site wasn't receiving credit for sending my visitors to them. The visitors were going, but the packet didn't contain referrer data. At first, I, I assumed it had to do with how I redirect users instead of the link going direct to the target site. And the advertiser accepted that and the stats I provided. But after a second advertiser contacted me about the same issue, uh, Google Analytics was not showing much traffic from my site, I decided to look into changing how my direct banner ads worked with a little JavaScript to keep my ability to track stats. I started with a simple page, one basic A tag with an href to another of my sites. When I tested this baseline, the referrer header was missing. What? So that's how he wrote it, actually. What? So I did some searching to discover that the trouble was that web browsers do not pass the referrer from sites that are using SSL. Whoops. I mean, it makes total sense. If you think about it, browsers assume that the URL of the source may have some sensitive information that shouldn't be shared with a target site. Not, of course, the case with my site. What I also found is there is a meta tag that will tell the browsers to pass the referrer for links on this page. I've added that to all my pages, and suddenly even the redirect method I was using for my banner ads was now passing referrers of the original click source. Bravo! Anyway, I realize that many others probably don't know about this side effect of switching to SSL. I've worked in security for a decade, and I wasn't aware of it, nor were a couple of peers in the industry I uh, asked about it. If the topic of having people switch their sites over to SSL comes up again... It might help out a few of your listeners who choose to do so and might have a negative impact from this little side effect. Thanks for reading. Thanks for providing the show. Been a big fan of Leo since the early screensavers days. Your neighbor in Orange County, California, Alex. So, okay, things are a little more complicated than Alex indicates, but he's essentially correct. It is, it's, uh, it's been part of HTTP, uh, from at least the 1.1 spec uh, in the RFC. And the RFC states that a web client like our browser should not include the referrer field in a query made from a secure domain to or a secure page when it's on a secure page to an unsecure domain. So it's the security crossing 
that is the concern. And the argument, as Alex suggests, is that that it's certainly possible that somebody is using HTTPS and because they're using HTTPS on their own site, they feel comfortable passing security-sensitive information in their URLs. I mean, it's still a bad idea because you just don't want to do that. All kinds of things cache that. And, I mean, even your browser will, will like, you know, keep a list of, of pages you visited recently. And while, you know, it may only be for you, that's still sitting in your computer. And, you know, putting things like usernames and passwords in the URL has been deprecated now for quite a while from a security standpoint. So it's a bad idea. But back back at HTTP 1.1, they were saying, look, maybe somebody is doing that, which you could argue they could do securely over HTTPS because that's not going to be sent in the clear. So if they were on a page that had that sensitive information in its URL, if that was part of the page's address that, like, that brought the user to that page of a site, and that user clicked on, for example, an ad link that was going to some other domain that was not secure, then strip out the referrer header. Well, the problem, of course, the way that industry has evolved is... This It's the referrer headers that tell advertising sites who, you know, wh- where the ad was clicked on. That's the way the ad- advertising servers are able to credit people's sites who carry ads with click-throughs to the ads and generate revenue. So if we, so if the links we're clicking on are HTTP links. So so the first way to solve the problem is for the ads themselves to be served over HTTPS. Then, even though they're a different domain that's secure, at least they're both secure, in which case the, the browsers will leave the referrer information there. But the more robust solution was a, an addition made in HTML5, And it's a tag that if you know that your URLs are clean, that is that no URL on your site is going to be leaking sensitive information. You don't care if that URL is known to to anybody else. Then you can add a meta tag and like stick it in your include file for the headers on your site and bang, now suddenly all of your sites have it. Uh, it, it it's the, the meta tag is meta and then name equals referrer with two R's and then ER. So I guess that's three, three R's total. Are you sure it's three a, R's? A, there's a famous typo. Isn't it one uh, R? Isn't it R-E-F? Isn't it misspelled? It's misspelled in the header, but not in the meta tag. Not in the meta tag, okay. Yes, because they made a famous misspelling in the spec. (laughs) R-E-F-E-R-E-R. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so, and then the content is one of four values. So you can say uh, meta space name equals referrer in quotes, and then content equals either never, 
which which is a way to tell the browser that your URLs are sensitive and you never want them sent out in in the user's queries originating from one of your pages. Or you can say, you can use the keyword origin, which, for example, might be you run a search engine and want people to know that, that the traffic came from you, but not the query tag. So there, the browser will strip off after the, at the end of the, at the end of the, um, URL before the the question mark and the so-called query tail that get that part gets removed so only the page ID but nothing afterwards will will, will be added um, or you can use the tag default um, in which case you get this behavior where it tries to be smart where it'll add the URL if it's HTTPS that you're going to but not if it's HTTP. Or you can say always. And so if you, if you know that you don't have sensitive information in your URLs, then and you do want to make sure that, that click-throughs to non-secure sites receive re- the referrer information so that you get credit, then you would want to say always. And that, that, that modifies the behavior of compliant browsers. Today... Google Chrome and Safari both support this meta referrer um, addition up in the header. Uh, Firefox doesn't yet, but it's in progress, and IE doesn't at all. So uh, very useful information. Thank you, Alex, for, for reminding us of that. We, uh, we're going to pause for a moment in this uh, conversation, if you don't mind, to talk a little bit about our sponsor, audible.com, and then we shall continue with more questions and answers from Steve a little later on. How token ring works. No. <laughs> no. Yes, don't all. put a ring on your token. No, 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 none of that. None of that. Our show today brought to you by audible.com. Steve refuses to listen to audiobooks. I'm working on him. Now, you you got me on Twitter, so maybe you don't have a commute, so it really, I mean, I yeah, I don't. And uh, and you you are a superhuman who is able to read text while on a treadmill, Love despite the fact yep. that your head's bouncing like one of them soldiers in the uh, changing the guards. But in any event, I like to listen while I exercise. I like to listen while I drive. I like to listen, you know, pretty much all the time. I uh, I have a Sonos system in my house, and I'll actually pump the Audible through Sonos and listen as I walk around the house vacuuming and tidying and washing dishes. Audible.com, it's a great place to go if you want to find 150,000 audiobooks, all the newest stuff. In fact, there's a new one that just came out by Walter Isaacson, the guy who wrote the Steve Jobs biography. I'm reading great reviews of this. It's called The Innovators, how a group of hackers, geniuses, and geeks created the digital revolution. And I, you know, I haven't listened to it yet. It'll be my next Audible listen, I'm sure. But uh, uh, a lot of people who I trust are saying this is a very good book. He talks about Vannevar Bush, remember, uh, who wrote the, in the 50s what tech, what computers might look like in, in the present. Uh, Alan Turing, John Van Neumann, J.C.R. Licklider, the creator of the uh, Internet, as we know it. Doug Engelbart, the inventor of the mouse. Robert Noyce of Intel. Bill Gates, Woz, Jobs, Tim Berners-Lee, Larry Page. So he gets right up to the present. 
The Innovators. But that's just one of many books. But the reason I mention it is because I'm going to get you a book free. So I'm trying to help you out here. There's so many things to choose from classics like H.G. Wells' The Time Machine or The Legends of King Arthur and His Knights to Mark Rovicinovich's modern classic novels. Rogue Code is the newest, just came out. Yep. They've got all three. And I, I know Steve and I have talked to Mark about the books and uh, just think the world of them. He's the guy who created Sys Internals and is really pretty much responsible for Azure at Microsoft now. And his uh, trilogy, Zero Day, Trojan Horse, and now Rogue Code are all thrillers based on technology. And, of course, because it's Mark, really accurate technology. So I just, I'm, I got to tell you, there's so many good choices. If you want to read about the, the start of the Internet, where wizards stay up late is fabulous. I listen to that on Audible. Um, th- go to audiblepodcast.com slash security now. That's the website. I mean, audible.com to browse. But audiblepodcast.com slash security now. That's where you'll go to sign up. Uh, for the gold account, your first month's free, but your first credit's free, and so is uh, the Daily Digest of the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal read to you. Politics, fiction, science fiction, great. What? Did you see this? A new Honorverse series? This is different, though. Is this Honor, Honor Harrington? Yeah, that's David Weber. He's, the, he, he's definitely, yeah, he's definitely the author. Yeah. What? A new Honorverse what? series. Ah, call, call to duty. To duty, book one of Manticore Ascendant. When we know what Steve will be reading. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, he loves the Honorverse. All of the Honorverse is there. Honor Harrington, of course. Um, kind of naval battle novels from the future. The distant yep. future, I guess, would be the best way to describe that. Um, and, and, and politics, too. It's got a yeah. lot of the, the whole yeah, machinations. Lots of fun. And if you want real politics, you know, the return of George Washington, 1783 to 1789. I listen to a lot of, I love history, frankly. And listening it when you're in the car and you really, it's like you're learning and driving. You're getting, it's a twofer. Visit audiblepodcast.com slash security now. Sign up for the brand new Honorverse series or whatever. You know, pick pick a book. Pay nothing in the first 30 days. Cancel in that time and you'll be able to keep the book and pay nothing. But I think you're going to want to stick around. Ooh, look. New uh, Philip K. Dick stories. I mean, they're not new, but new to Audible. Selected Stories Volume 2. I'm excited. Audiblepodcast.com slash security now. We thank Audible, one of our uh, original sponsors. And, and still. it looks like they have a nice uh, uh, rating and ranking system there. Oh, yeah, yeah. The too. reviews. and so, Oh, they're good. Yeah. Yeah. Love them. All right. Uh, continuing on, Steve, more questions from... Our fabulous crew. By the way, you can leave questions at security at uh, Steve's website, grc.com slash feedback. This comes to us from Chris Avaliera in Fort Dodge, Indiana. He's worried that Mac address randomization might be a problem. Now, you talked, I bet, last week about Apple's yep. bogus Mac address yes, randomization. Yes, exactly. Yep. He says, in fact, he's glad you talked about it, uh, or the lack thereof, as the case may be, last week. I have a question. I was actually dreading the feature for the following reasons. I use Mac filtering on my wireless wireless network. So I was concerned that my phone would never automatically connect when I was home, and I would have to turn that feature off on my router. I'm trying to learn as much as I can from your podcast. Thank you for the awesome free service. So I'm not clear if Mac filtering is actually real security. 
Hey, but I figured every little obstacle would at least prevent the babysitter from logging in, even if she miraculously found my hidden network and guessed the impossible passcode. Is Mac filtering really a viable, valuable security feature? If so, well, what happens if you get your wish and iOS truly comes up with a different Mac address every time I try to connect to my home network or any other network with Mac filtering where my device is allowed such as a BYOD-enabled workplace. As crazy as it sounds, I might actually want the ability to turn off the randomizer feature. I'm probably one of the few that really doesn't care if I'm being tracked. I'm pretty boring. Got nothing to hide. Your insights appreciated as always, Chris. Okay, so um, in the first place, um, there's nothing wrong with MAC address filtering, but it's a little bit like locking the door and hanging the key next to it. <laughs> Because anyone who is going to hack you, who wants to get onto your network, will be looking at a packet sniffer. And they may realize pretty quickly when they're getting no response at all from your router that there's probably a MAC address filter. Mm -hmm. All they have to then do is see any other device on your network which is getting a response from the router, and use that MAC Spoof address. It. Spoof it. The problem is the MAC address is not part of the encryption. It's part of the transport. And transport is necessarily outside of encryption because that's the, the, the protocol. So, so the problem is anybody who's looking will see MAC addresses that are valid and passing through the filter... And they can use it. So, yes. Uh, the first, so, so the first part of the question is, eh, it's, you know, it's not bad to have it if you're someone who likes twiddling with technology and with router configuration. And, of course, this means that every time you add another device, you've got to go through yeah, the permit, it's a permitting it. Yes, yeah. yeah, so it ends up being a lot more to maintain. He's also doing, it sounds like, SSID hiding, which is equally worthless. Yeah. Yeah, so um, the second part is that the, the randomization, if and when they actually do make it useful, should not be a problem because the phone knows if it's, if it's passively sort of just like probing and, and looking at, at Wi-Fi ports, you know, Wi-Fi uh, hotspots, or... If it is at your home and it has in the past it is connected to yours and it knows you and yours and in that case when it's actually making a connection, it always uses its proper real fixed MAC address. So uh, I'm I'm very sure that filtering won't cause the iPhone to have problems, and but also. For what it's worth, Chris, eh, it's it's not clear that filtering is really buying you as much as much security as it is sort of annoyance. As exactly as Leo says, it's you know <laughs> every time you want to bring up a new device onto your router, you got to go figure out its MAC address and and add that to the table. And anybody who is looking at what's going on in the air can see all the MAC addresses that right. are being permitted. Right. And SSIDs, by the way. Yeah. <clears throat> Patrick Laramie, Wyoming, he has a question about Ethernet MAC addresses in general. Steve, why doesn't every device 
use a completely random MAC address? Why even bothering have a fixed, unique MAC address? It doesn't make any sense. Each MAC address is 48 bits, which means if you generate a MAC address randomly, you have a large but not infinite chance that you'll generate two identical MAC addresses. It's one in a large number. <laughs> However, <laughs> you think I'm going to read two that? Two to the 48. Two to the 48. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, that's not so bad. It's a 281,474,976,710,656, if you care. Yes. However, MAC address collision is detectable. That means that in the case the two devices join the same network with the same MAC address, a collision would be detected and one or both of them just, you know, generate another completely random MAC address. The statistical probability that both devices continue to generate the same random MAC address uh, rapidly and aggressively approaches zero. Problem solved. Why aren't we doing this? Is there any reason whatsoever that a device needs a globally unique identifier at the MAC address level? I cannot see one you at know, all. It's just historical. Well, but also, um, it's you, you don't want to have that kind of computation necessary on a dumb device, a cheap, dumb device. Well, and Why that's just that? it. When, when Ethernet, the protocol Ethernet, was created, those the, remember, those network adapters cost thousands of dollars. It was, it was several thousand dollars to put one computer on the Ethernet. And this was, it was discrete components. And, you know, ba and, and, so, and, and as we've talked about this before, the way the MAC address is segmented is that the first 24 bits, the first half, the left half, is, is a, a number given to the manufacturer of Ethernet protocol adapters. And then the right half they control, that's their own serial number of adapters within that their manufacturing number. So it was deliberately, and, and that was sort of a clever approach that, that Metcalf came up with to specifically be able to give everything a fixed address and, um, and, and have zero probability of collision. Today, in this day and age, we, you know, we toss around the idea of, oh, detect a collision and make up a new address. Because we, we could do that trivially with the technology we have now. But back when this, when this standard was created, that would have cost money. I mean, like, it was just like, like enough that it wasn't even, didn't even begin to be worthwhile. I actually agree that in, in this day and age, it, do, it really no longer makes sense that having a, a random MAC address would be workable and feasible and cost nothing. Um, it's not totally true that it's easily, that, that a collision is easily detected. You, you will detect a collision, but it's not in the, it doesn't have the robustness of, for example, packet collision on a shared medium Ethernet wire where the system is designed for that. The, the Ethernet assumes non-collision MAC addresses, and, I mean, it makes it very unhappy when there is a collision. All kinds of things sort of stutter and lock up and stop communicating, and, and while that could probably be changed, it's like, well, we have a standard, and, you know, nothing's going to happen to change that. But for what it's worth, as, as sort of a thought problem, I think it's entirely feasible if, if things had sort of come out differently. There's some value, too, to having static MAC addresses, I think. Yeah. Um, I mean, and people are worried about the privacy issue, problem. but uh, I think there's some value to it. Um, 
Howard Matthews in Birmingham, which is still in the still United <laughs> Kingdom. He was worried about Scotland, I think. He's wondering whether higher HDD capacities intrinsically mean faster throughput. Listening to your discussion about sector interleaf got me thinking, always dangerous. I know access times on hard drives are limited by the fact that the heads have to move to the right track. But once there, the higher the data density, the faster the throughput, right? So these new 8-terabyte drives ought to be faster in use, let's say, than a 1- or 2-terabyte drive because they've got higher data density, right? Right, right? That is actually correct. There are, there are three ways you can increase the density. You can create the linear bit density, that is, which is the, the number of bits around the circumference of individual tracks. You can, create, you can increase the track density, which is the inter-track spacing. You lower that and you get more tracks per inch. And, of course, you can, create, you can add the number of platters. A platter is going to have two surfaces, so you, if you have more platters, you have more surfaces. The two, only one of those three things, the actual linear bit density, directly relates to data throughput. But I remember looking carefully at this um, when I was working on 6.1, and I'll be, of course, coming back to it as soon as Squirrel is behind me, um, because I was, I was curious, are we, like, where are we in approaching the, the, the 6, the, uh, now I'm trying to remember what, my, what the nomenclature was, uh, the, uh, <laughs> I know that there, there's a 3 and a 6 in the SATA spec, um, um, and uh, I guess it's maybe six, is it six megabits or gigabits? gigabits? It's gigabits. I, yeah. Okay. So drives are still way slower than that. So we have, we have headroom before we start saturating the, 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 the interface between the drive and the motherboard when we're running at, at absolutely full speed, um, uh, which I was glad for because we seem to keep, increasing the density and of course now that we switch to helium filled drives we're that reduces the flying height that allows the heads to come closer and if the heads are closer they essentially have more resolution and so that'll be the next thing that in, that in, that increases density is lower closer flying heads because there's a helium bearing rather than an air bearing. And that also turns out that air was creating a lot of friction. Helium is lower friction, and that allows the, the discs to spin faster as well. So we just keep pushing these things in ways that are sort of amazing. But it is the case, yes, higher density means, in, in like at, as a general principle, means higher throughput because certainly one of the ways they're getting more density is packing more bits per inch around the circumference. We used to say, remember the days of Stacker? Yeah. <laughs> we used to say, oh, well, Stacker offsets the extra overhead in compressing the data by making throughput faster because the data, I don't think that makes any sense, but that's what we said. No. Uh, we, used to, we, we, were, we were looking ways for, for ways to speed these things we're up. We just were trying to justify it. Yeah. Steve confused Mary, the IT girl in Zephyr Cove, Lake Tahoe. About the strength of public keys, shame on you, Steve. Oh, wow. You recently said that elliptic, elliptic curve cryptography is both stronger and 
faster than RSA with far fewer bits in the key. Well, I'm having trouble with that concept. If brute force is the only known attack, how can fewer bits combined with a faster algorithm provide more strength? Mm. Huh. So I, I understand. I mean, I, that makes sense, Mary, that that's confusing mm. because we're we're talking about different technologies in symmetric encryption where there is a there's a symmetric key which is unknown. The way you crack that, given a cipher which doesn't admit any clues is brute force. And so it's two to the N where N is the number of bits and there's that many possible keys. And if uh, assuming a random key and a brute force at random, it's going to take on average half of two to the N or two to the N minus one guesses in order to, because all you can do is guess at the key. That is not the way we crack asymmetric that is to say, public key encryption. With public key encryption, for example, th we have a very different problem. We've got, in the case of, for example, RSA, we have two prime numbers, and multiplying them is easy. Factoring the result when we don't know what the, fa what the two prime sources were is hard. And so that's the secret in... RSA in, in in classic RSA crypto is that that we have a we, we have a problem where it's, it's typically in crypto it's called a trap door it's a one way function it's trivial to multiply those but then when you look at the product it turns out so so, so for example you don't brute force that you 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 perform a a prime factorization of the product of primes hunting for from a an, an, through a vast possible space for the the two numbers both prime that were multiplied to create that that product and that's a really hard problem in elliptic curve crypto we essentially have a discrete logarithm problem on a specific curve that is there there there's a mathematical curve that is described and then it exists in what's called a finite field, meaning that that essentially we we do a modulus and we only keep the remainder of of the of the values that we're computing within this field. Um, and when you don't have the whole value, you only have sort of a hint of it. That's a very hard problem. But again, it's not. It's not something you brute force. There are various ways that cryptographers have of attacking this from characteristics of the, the encryption, but it's not just sitting there and saying, oh, I've got this many bits, so let's start guessing. So there really, there, there, there's a, the confusion arises from the fact that we, in one case, brute forcing is done with symmetric ciphers, and and the 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 way you crack asymmetric ciphers is a completely a function of the nature of that cipher. Um, and so, what I was talking about with ECC is that re relative to RSA is that the because ECC is harder. That is 
um, we we can take problems with very few bits. And and for example, you know, like like uh, multiply seventeen and thirteen, and then easily figure out what the what the prime factorization of their product is because the numbers are so small we can do it easily we could take a similarly small domain elliptic curve problem and given things the same size the nature of elliptic curve of the elliptic curve problem is much more difficult than the nature of of factorization at the same size and what that means is we can use much smaller numbers with ECC to get the equivalent difficulty. And the fact that we're using small numbers means that when we're encrypting things, that's much faster. So, for example, when web servers are wanting to use ECC to encrypt connections, they can do that with much less overhead than if they were using traditional RSA encryption, which because the keys are bigger to do encryption, it just takes it's just more processing in order to do it. So that's the whole tune up on uh, on the relative difficulty of cracking different different keys in the three different uh, types of crypto. I hope you're happy, Mary, the IT girl. I just hope you're happy. <laughs> <laughs> now we move on to our final question from Birmingham in the United Kingdom. A terrific TNO question from Mark. Steve, I love the show. Longtime listener. Proud owner of Spinrite, Password Haystack Preacher, Password Haystack Preacher, Vitamin D Taker, Squirrel Evangelist, blah, blah, blah. I wonder if he wears a bearskin hat. But first time question proposer. Steve, the company I work for, like many others, are often looking at outsourcing systems, and I'm intrigued to know more about Trust No One, TNO. I understand the concept of TNO, but I'm not sure I can apply it when auditing the security of outsourced services. I understand that some of the telltale signs are if the outsourced service can do a password recovery. Is this true, and does it apply to recovery methods where you're not supplied with your original password but are provided with a reactivation link? What else are the giveaways, the tells, and what direct questions would you ask vendors? How can we cut through the sales spiel and determine whether services are actually TNO or whether these suppliers also hold the keys to our data? If you get round to answering this question, it would be greatly appreciated. If not, I will not think any less of you because the work you do for the show is great. Much appreciated. <laughs> the very polite Mark. So this is a great question. You know, we've never had it posed before. Um, I like the question. Um, TNO tells. So here would be the th here would be the test. You would pretend to be nervous, Nelly, wanting to store your data in the cloud or with this purveyor, and you would say to them innocently, not with them not knowing that you were a listener of the Security Now podcast for years. No, because that's a real tell. Yeah, you'd say. What okay, we're gonna store our stuff with you. What if we lose everything? What if we like we, like, like it? We like what would you, you know, do? How would yes. you help us? How do we recover if the person that knows the password, you know, goes into a coma? 
or is unavailable and we have to access the data, how can you help us? If they can, they are not secure. Right. They are not TNO. The idea is if if it's the if it's possible for them to help you get your data back without you providing anything, then they can get it back with or without you by definition. And they could be giving that your data to anybody who asked for it under whatever terms and conditions. So that's the key. What you want to hear is them warning you. You want red flashing neon banners on their site saying, look, you will we'll store this for you, but you are entirely responsible for being for not losing control and keeping control of the access keys. You want them you want them telling you, and believe me, they will tell you because they don't want the liability. If they can't recover it for you, they're going to make sure you know it's on you. And if you want TNO, that's who you want. You want somebody who says, look, just be sure you understand the responsibility you're taking on here. We can't help you. We'll, you know, if, we'll store your bits, but that's all they are to us is pseudo random noise. It's on you to be able to decrypt them again. So if they instead say, oh, well, we have very good security, military grade. In fact, we actually, (laughs) we have alien technologies. (laughs) Oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah. Navy Navy SEALs. SEALs. No, the Navy SEALs. No, no, no. The Navy SEALs negotiated with the aliens because you don't want just anybody to do your alien negotiations. (laughs) So the Navy SEALs did the alien negotiation to get their technology and... Thanks to that, we can recover your data if you lose everything, including all your access control. In that case, no TNO. It's like the, that Washington Post article that said, uh, oh, the solution to law enforcement's needs oh, and the our golden needs key. privacy the is gold, some magical golden key, golden key oh, that's God. held by unicorns. <sighs> Uh, yeah. Now, it's not a back door. We all agree no. that there should not no. be a back door. <laughs> but if Apple and Google could just come up with a golden key, then that, you know, we won't call it a back door. It's the golden key. It's the golden key. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That would be ticket. nice. <laughs> Steve Gibson, GRC.com. You go there. You will find many wonderful things, including Spinrite, the world's finest hard drive maintenance and recovery utility steve's freebies all the information you could ever want about squirrel vitamin d perfect paper <laughs> passwords password haystacks everything's free except for Spinrite. you know everything Spinrite pays for it all yep. and uh and uh it's a good place to go if you have questions uh, not via email steve he doesn't look at email just uh the feed uh, go to the feedback form which is at grc.com slash feedback he also has uh, 16 kilobit audio versions of this show. No one else has that. He has locked in the market. He has a monopoly on 16 kilobit audio <laughs> for this show. Yes, it's increasingly less important, but <laughs> Lee, uh, Elaine really likes it, although she's got a new satellite link. Oh, Apparently good. Apparently she's able faster. to download things much faster. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Elaine takes that 16 kilobit audio, listens intently, and turns it into a 
typed transcript of this show. Which often we, sends me notes in the middle of the night saying, what, what does this mean? How do you what does, I, I listen to this three times. <laughs> Sometimes I go, I, I'll, I'll listen to it too. I have no idea what I just <laughs> saying. Redacted. No, there's nothing redacted in her transcripts. Uh, but that's all at GRC.com. We have high-quality audio and video also at our site, twit.tv slash SN. If you wish to subscribe, there are many, many podcast apps that will do the job because Security Now is one of the oldest podcasts in the world. And so has, as a result, we, we you know kind of wormed its way into all the different podcast apps. You may even you know, when we're there. when we're talking about Elaine doing the transcribing, and she's transcribing that we're talking about her doing the transcribing. Isn't there like some like yeah. some sort of an infinite loop Mobius thing that yeah. happens, like when you aim the camera yeah. at the monitor and it yeah. goes down into infinity? It's a snake eating its own tail. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, we do this show 11 a.m. How was that changing times? By the way, did that work out all right uh, last week? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. No we're, problem. We're at all. back to our regular time though. 11 a.m. I'm sorry, 1 p.m. Uh, Pacific time every uh, Tuesday, right after Mac Break Weekly. That's 4 p.m. Eastern, 2000 UTC. Uh, you can watch at twit.tv. And uh, let's see what else. I think that's uh, that's pretty much uh, everything. Yeah, I'm completely bemused. By Windows 10. The good news is apparently I don't have to worry about it for like until the spring sometime. You know, there's uh, a big, and I'm surprised you didn't talk about this, but I'm gonna. There's a big furor over it because in the uh, license agreement for this, beta software, not even beta, it's oh, technical the preview. Logger. They yes. say we we have the right to not only, you know, every, watch everything you do, but we have a keystroke logger to monitor yeah, your keystrokes. Care. That's normal. That's telemetry, um, instrumentation, sometimes they call it, that is commonly used in de for debugging purposes. Especially when you might type something and it collapses. Right. It's like, well, it would be nice to know what you typed. I'm, I'm going to take a wild guess here and doubt, I, say they probably won't put it in the release version of Windows 10. <laughs> now, that especially would be a problem. Especially now that it's gotten as much press and, yeah. and attention as it has. Yeah. With, but, yeah. And then people say, oh, well, here's how you disable it. Don't disable it. You're making an agreement with Microsoft if you want to use a technical preview to help them. This is about beta testing. Right. That's what happens. You can't – you don't get to say, well, I'll beta test it, but you can't know anything I'm doing. That's not how it works. That's part of the agreement. I, you know, I'm an old-timer now when I have to explain. Yeah, and besides, you know, Windows 10 at this point, apparently it's got a ways to go. You yeah, know, Paul yeah. was saying there's gonna be, they're going to be putting all kinds of more stuff in it. It's like, okay, what you have right now is a shell. Yeah. And try it okay. fine, but understand that you are now a beta tester and there are rights and obligations that go along with that. Yep. Uh, and and that does not include the right to turn off the logger. <laughs> or the crash reporting the, yeah, technology, like which is the reason, the whole reason it's out there. They're spreading right. it around in order to make it crash right. so that they can go, oh, look. Right. You're uh, helping them. Why did that happen? You're yes. helping them. And if you don't like it, guess what? You don't have to install it. That's even easier. Yeah. Leo, you do have to, you know, they, they, they will give you your money back, which you didn't pay. Right. It's like when people complain about our shows. Well, That's I'll right. be glad to give you a full refund. Absolutely. <laughs> Steve, thank you so much. Always a pleasure. Lots of fun. We'll see you next week on Security Now. Thanks, my friend. Security.